You're listening to the Broken Meeple Podcast, a show about board and card games, from lucky dice rollers to strategic mindbenders. On today's show, first impressions of the Kenner Spear winner from 2011 Lancaster, and my viewpoints on a recent 12-hour marathon of board gaming with friends. What went well, what went wrong, and what have I learned from the experience? Here's your host, that cosmic alien with the freaky special power, Luke Hector. Hello and welcome to the podcast, thank you for listening. It's been a bit of an action-packed week in terms of games, not to, not just with my local board game clubs in Southampton and Portsmouth, I've also had three friends round to introduce them to the world of board gaming. They weren't completely new to it, but it's been a while since I'd seen them all, and in that time I had rejigged my passion for board gaming, and so they were keen to see what I had in store for them. So... I invited them round and we ended up with a 12-hour gaming marathon session from 6 o'clock in the evening to 6 a.m. in the morning. No kidding. And, well, there was a lot learned from that experience and also a lot to be gained and loved by it as well. But I'll go into that later on. First off, though, we've got first impressions of a recent game I've played at the Southampton on board meetups called Lancaster, which won the 2011 Kinnerspiel Award and, well, what do I think about it? Let's find out. Lancaster is a Euro game designed by Mathias Kramer. I hope I've got that pronunciation right. Apologies if I haven't. It published in 2011 by Queen Games. Now, that already put a bit of dread in my anticipations for the game because... My experience with Queen Games has, well, shall we say, not been great. My main image that comes to my head when I think of Queen Games is Kingdom Builder. And, well, if you've been listening to my podcast, you know exactly what hatred I have for that piece of wooden tat of a game. It really it does not sit well with me. So every time I see a game by Queen Games, I always think, ooh, this better be better than that one. It, you better make up for it. And, well, in the case of Lancaster, we're pleased to say it did. Lancaster is a relatively lightish, maybe medium-weight Euro game, where in 1413, the new King of England, Henry V of Lancaster, is basically unifying England and is dealing with conflicts with France. Well, that's the general theme of it. The theme is relatively tacked on. You could probably insert some other historical reference in this game and it would work just as well. But it does make it nice to play and gives it its own look. As each player takes the role of an ambitious aristocratic family, you are playing to amass the most victory points, or to put it in a thematic way, who will be the best supporter of this new powerful Lord of Lancaster. In this game, you have a map with various counties of England, as well as other areas such as the top part of France where you can go to war and you have your own little player board with your castle which currently is unbuilt but you will build this throughout the game. Each turn you take your knights which you can acquire more of and upgrade during the game and send them to one of three places either different counties where you will gain special abilities and other favours from nobles your castle, where you can receive income, new squires, new knights, new bonuses for the next turn, 
Or you can send them into conflict with France, where all the players combine their power and efforts in order to win favour with the king. Now, the components themselves are okay. They're nothing special, but they're not bad either. They look colourful and they are fairly intuitive. The board itself looks very pretty as well, showing a nice map of England with some good old-fashioned heraldry imagery, in that sense, is that the right way to say it? And depicting the various counties in their their old-school fashion. And I was pleased to see that Somerset was ranked in one of the higher areas of the counties which you needed a big level knight to get to. Go Somerset! It's not just a simple worker placement game, however. When you are bidding for these counties in favour of some nobles, you will send your knights there, and they range from level 1 to 4. Now, it's not just a simple case of, I put my worker there, you can't take the area. People can still nick that county from you if they have a higher level knight, or if they have an equal level knight, but send their squires in as assistants. A squire is effectively a secondary piece that acts as a bit of a tiebreaker for winning the favour of the nobles. Now, that that already creates a good atmosphere of interaction in the game, which you don't tend to get with a lot of Euros, because you might have a player who has decided he wants to go to a place you want, and suddenly you're thinking, ooh, well, if I want that, I'm going to need a high-level knight. So it's no good to just have a bunch of cheap knights in your arsenal. You need to ideally get some high-level ones as well, so that you can vie for power and sway the way of the nobles. The conflict with France is effectively almost like a cooperative effort. Players send their knights to give their knights power rating to the war, and when it reaches a certain amount, that conquest is won, and everybody gets points for doing it. Sending your mates to war also gets you bonuses that you can use in that turn. However, the downside is, whilst your knight is there, you cannot get him back that turn to use in other counties and other places in your castle. So you have to think, how long's the knight going to be there, and can I afford to have one less knight to work with and the final thing you can do is to send them to your castle where you can get extra gold, extra squires, uh, spend squires to get various abilities. Not many people tend to do this really because as you go through the game you can build parts of your castle which means you get those bonuses as almost like an upkeep at the start of the turn. But you know when you need that little bit extra and all the counties are being nicked there's no harm in sending your knight there. The way that this ends up being a good game is that you have to think hard about where you are going to put these knights and it's not just there's no clear strategy in the sense of which one is the most optimal way of doing it you get points for going to war you get points for being in the high counties you get points for getting the favor of nobles so that you can ascend up this little point track on your board you get points for having the biggest castle you get points for having the biggest range of knights in your arsenal So there's a lot of ways to get points in this game, and none of them seem particularly unbalanced. I joined this game literally at the last second. I turned up to the club quite late due to traffic, and I was invited in, barely had a grasp of the rules, because he had to basically go them really quickly for me, and I just chose a strategy and went with it. And it seemed to work. I had to readjust myself one or twice, one or twice? One or two times during the game, and... It didn't hinder me to a great extent. I still was able to keep up. And even though I had a bit of a shaky start in terms of total points, I was able to eventually leapfrog over the others and snatch an endgame victory. 
So that was a good way of showing that the game wasn't unbalanced and that being at the back doesn't necessarily mean you can't jump back later. There's no runaway winner. Not a lot of Euro games are able to achieve this and I was pleased with Lancaster for doing it. But that wasn't one of the best things about the game. There's also another mechanic that comes in at the end of each turn, I believe. When you are scoring points for the round, there is a set of laws that are set out for the entire game. And there are three laws in play at one time, and they usually say that you can get coins if you spend this, or everybody with a certain amount of knights gets another knight, that kind of thing. But what laws are in play is determined by a voting round in which everybody takes their yes or no counter as well as voting cubes. Now, I know voting cubes doesn't sound like much and this is where the components go down a bit. It's just basic little cubes. But the more nobles that you are able to sway from different counties, the more cubes you will have to adjust your vote. So you can say, I'm going to say yes to this law being passed and if you had three cubes in your hand at the same time, then that essentially means that your vote counts for free better than it was before. Everybody in secret will look at a law and choose one of their yes or no votes, as well as hide some cubes in their hand to say that the nobles are giving their opinion as well. Everybody puts their hand out in front of them, shows what the vote is, and if it's an overall majority, then the vote is passed and the law comes into play. If it's voted against, the law gets shuffled back into the deck and doesn't get to be seen. Now this is a really good voting mechanic. In some games it works, in some games it doesn't, but in this one it works because there is a, a reason to go after these nobles if you think you need certain laws to be passed. And some of these laws can get you some very useful abilities and points. So you can't just go through the entire game with no nobles at your side if you're hoping to make the most of these laws. And it can be critical at points to say, I want this law to be passed in order to benefit yourself. But you don't necessarily have to just benefit yourself. You could just get the cube so that you can naysay against the laws that you know will benefit other players. Because not everybody benefits from every law. So you are basically interacting again with the other players with this voting mechanic, trying to benefit yourself and trying to hinder them. And again, this brings back to the great thing about Lancaster, that there is a lot of interaction in this game for what is a Euro worker placement game at heart. And with the extra routes to victory and the fact that there's no runaway winner, this is a very good game. My only qualms with it, the theme is a little tacked on. You could replace this with pretty much any other historical theme and it would still work. And... When it comes to theme in games with me, I'm not big on history. I don't tend to go for these games that are based on British history. It's not my subject, and I would probably get bored with the theme over time. But it is a good game, and despite its slightly high price tag, it's certainly worth giving it a try and seeing if you like it. I'm sure a lot of Euro gamers will probably have this in their collection, but failing that, if you know anyone at your club that has this game, I urge you to ask them to bring it in next week and give it a try and see what yourself. You may be pleasantly surprised. So that's Lancaster by Mayfield Screamer of Queen. Twelve hours of gaming. 
Whew. I have not been to a gaming convention yet, but I am insisting that I will make the UK Games Expo next May 2014, and also hopefully Essen come next October. And, well, those go on for many days. I only had to do 12 hours, and I was knackered by the end of it. Although saying that, most gaming conventions are played throughout the day. We were doing 6pm to 6am after I'd already had a long week of work and been up all day hosting. So, I suppose that's going to hinder my ability to last 12 hours in general anyway, trying to do it early in the morning. And don't think we were just playing light games all night. Oh, no, no, no. I mean, included in the mix was Arkham Horror and Lords of Waterdeep. Okay, Lords of Waterdeep's not the heaviest Euro around, but it's not exactly a light dice game, is it? Compared to other ones that we tried, like King of Tokyo, for example. It required a lot of explanation, considering none of my friends had played these games before, and some of these games could last for hours. But it was a good 12 hours all round, however, I was able to gain some insight into what other people thought of certain games, as well as learn a few little tips when explaining to players how to play these games as well as what sort of players I should be playing these games with. So I'm just going to go through the story of the night in sequence of what games were being played and just give an overview of what the experience was like and also what I learned from it. First up we had Arkham Horror. They had heard all about me banging on about Arkham Horror during the month of October and all of them had some experience with the Cthulhu RPG, so they were quite keen to test out this game. Again, being Arkham Horror, took a little while to set up, although I do have a nice filing system for the cards, which does make life a lot easier. We sat down for a four-player game of Arkham, and I decided I was going to use an expansion, even though there were new players, but I kept it to a relatively simple one and used Dunwich Horror. Obviously, I used various elements from the other expansions, like the relationship cards and the personal stories, to give the game a bit more theme and immersion. Now, we unfortunately got somewhat killed by... I forget the name of the ancient one. He's the guy who almost looks a bit like the Elephant Man. He's he's almost like got this weird trunk in front of him, and his ability is that you can't knock more than three Doom tokens off him in a single round of combat... Um, I think he was chosen purely because of his weird sort of elephant look. It just caught everybody's eye and we thought, let's give him a try. I was hoping the Dunwich Horror would make an appearance as well, just to spice up the game a bit. Unfortunately, what happened was that the... Despite using the Herald, the Dunwich Horror just doesn't show up. He, We had a lot of clue tokens in that area, so there was a reason to go to that part of the board. But for some reason... This is a hit and miss thing I have with the Dunwich Horror. This is why I only put it sort of halfway on my list of expansions you should get. Because the contents of the box and what it adds are good. But the Dunwich Horror mechanic itself is hit and miss. Sometimes you could have an inrush of monsters in Dunwich. And suddenly it's like, oh god, we've got to get this done before the Dunwich Horror appears. But in a few games you can just have nothing happen in Dunwich. No monsters appearing, and therefore no big deal with the Dunwich Horror. And this, it, we might as well have not used the expansion in that game, because it just meant we had more ground to cover, and we struggled to get enough clue tokens to get enough gates sealed. So eventually the Ancient One rose up, and we got into an epic battle with him using the Kingsport expansion cards, which was a bit of a laugh. 
But unfortunately, we did eventually get eaten up, which is kind of what happens when the Ancient One does rise. I'm not entirely certain why they brought in the fact that you could fight him and have the epic battles and that, because let's face it, how do you beat these things? These things just devour you by clicking their fingers. So I'm not quite certain why they did it, but it makes it a bit more thematic. So the game was good fun, but they were eager to try a second game the next day. I say the next day. This was the first game we played at 6 a 6 p.m. Sorry, and we ended up playing Arkham again the next day after we'd had a bit of a sleep. So they were keen to try it again, but that wasn't the best game of Arkham I'd ever had. It was not like bad in a sense, but it just would have been nice for the Dunwich Horror to have made an appearance that game and be more useful. It's why I don't tend to bring out that board as much. I really do prefer Innsmouth and highly recommend that expansion if you're going for a game board one. So that was the first one, Arkham Horror. Once you've had a heavy game of Arkham Horror, you need to waddle away with a light game. And I knew the perfect game that they were going to enjoy, and that was King of Tokyo. That always goes down well when you bring it to new gamers, particularly if they like to beat each other up and just generally pummel each other into the ground with big monsters. Now, this got a good buzz when I was playing a game with them, and you know we had a good fun with two games, one after the other, of which we used all the expansions because, let's face it, they're easy enough to teach, and it went well. But I really want to know what I did to anger the gods of dice in an earlier life or something, because dice hate me. You look on my Farmer Giles profile on BoardGameGeek and you will see the token that I've put, um, not the token, the micro badge that I've put underneath my avatar saying dice hate me, because they do. I don't know what it is. All my life, when I've played war games, for example, like Warhammer and Warhammer 40k, dice just have a thing against me. I could be playing with a huge squad of orc boys, and I'm going to attack your space marines with this bag of 30 dice, and I could still not hit for toffee. And it's the same when I play various dice games, but King of Tokyo has to be one of the hardest games for me to win, because I just can't get the dice rolls. I never get sets of numbers, I don't get the hearts when I need to, everybody else has got evolutions growing out of their ears and I can't get any, and every time the dice are used against me, it's like, right, I'm pretty healthy, I can survive in Tokyo for a round, and somebody rolls six claws. It's just, I don't know what I did, but the dice really hate me, and it's probably why I'm swaying away from dice games in general these days. I don't hate them, and I still enjoy them, but... If I'm going to own any in my collection, I tend to prefer games that don't rely on dice to such an extent. Dice are okay to use when they're a supporting part of the game. For example, Seasons. You know, you roll the dice in there to see what's available for you that turn, but it applies to every player, not just you. That's okay, I don't mind that. But in games like Kinotokyo, where the dice roll is pretty much fundamental to how you can win the game, it's starting to grate me a little bit. Not too much, though. I mean, in the end, King of Tokyo is a light game, and you shouldn't really take it too seriously anyway. But, you know, you would have heard my podcast talking about other games like Last Night on Earth, where the dice just seem to dictate whether you can win the game or not. And even Arkham Horror has this problem to a little extent. You've got to roll dice in order to see whether you succeed any skill checks, and the way the cards come out can basically hurt you or help you during the course of the game, depending on pure luck. But I don't mind it so much with Arkham Horror because you are effectively playing that game to tell a story, a really thematic, immersive story. 
Whereas, obviously, with a light dice game like King of Tokyo, there is no story. You are a big monster killing everyone. What's the story? You know, um, I mean, if has anybody seen the trailer for Godzilla that came out recently? Well, granted, it looks pretty epic, but how are you going to do a massive film based on Godzilla these days? It was alright in the old days where you could do monster movies like that, but surely you need a little bit more depth to a film before just saying, here's a big monster, it's going to beat stuff up. I don't know. So that being said, I'm sure I'll be at the cinema watching it anyway. I'm, I'm a sucker for any action or epic style film. And I quite enjoyed Pacific Rim when that came out. Not the best film in the world in terms of plot or depth or characters. But in the end, you watch that film because it had big kaiju monsters beating up giant robots. What's not to like about that? But that's King of Tokyo, and that was the second part of the map. Once we were done with that, we're getting into the almost the late night, possibly even near midnight after we'd gorged out on pizza. And we decided that a co-op was the next best thing. It turns out my mates have got a big liking for co-op games, which I didn't expect. I figured they would be more into conflict games, but no, apparently co-ops were getting a popular buzz from them. They enjoyed the cooperative nature of Arkham Horror, and they wanted a co-op where we were really working well together. So what better thing to bring out? Flashpoint Fire Rescue. My favourite co-op. And I hadn't read up on all the stuff in Extreme Danger yet, and I decided to stick to the base game, just to introduce them to the the core elements of it. Obviously, I didn't use the family game rules. In fact, I actually offered, shall we do things on heroic or veteran mode, and we opted for veteran mode. We went for the second hardest difficulty, because we were quite confident. And the game involved us going around the basic house from the base game, and but we were using the roles available across all the platforms. So I believe we had the deck gun operator, played by my mate Dan, I decided I was going to be the captain so I could give everyone bonus points because I figured, well, I know the game better than them so I can at least help them out with their roles. Uh, my friend Scott went with imaging technician so he was finding all the points of interest to check that where we needed to go. And to my delight, my other friend Rory decided to play the the role who I am most looking forward to play myself at some point, the dog, the rescue dog from the promo pack. Now, the dog's brilliant. He just, he looks so cute for a firefighting dog. I'm sorry, I know mean, it sounds a bit like girly in that, but that just, you look at the picture and you just can't help but go, aww, lovely little doggy. You know, depends if you like dogs or not, I suppose. But at least it's more useful than a rescue cat. Now, the dog normally has a problem going through any locked door. So you might think, oh, he goes into the first room and then he's stuck. But no, the dog's really useful, even in a normal one-story building. All you have to do is get a few doors blown out or just get the firefighters to open some doors and that dog can run around the house all over the place sniffing out points of interest. And because he has a lot of action points, even though he costs more to drag people across the house, he can still drag them three spaces a turn, which is better than most of the human people can do it when you haven't got the paramedic to treat them. And on top of that, the dog's able to squeeze through small gaps, and, and generally, it's just a quite a cool character. We left the rescuing of the people to him, pretty much. Dan and I took care of the fire, as well as me barking out orders. Not like Alpha Gamer-style orders, I mean, just giving my command points to them. And the imaging technician supported the dog, allowing him to roam through the place. 
and took care of the points of interest for us. The only other things to be concerned about were the hazardous materials, which I sorted out. So we worked as a very well-oiled machine. We were doing quite well as the team, and eventually we won with ease of room to spare. We still had at least 12 of those damage counters left, despite the explosions going off, and only one victim got burnt alive. So we, unfortunately, it was a small girl. But we managed to at least rescue the dog and the cat. That's the main thing, right? Okay, maybe not. But in the end, that was a very good game of Flashpoint, and it instantly became a hit with the friends. I think co-ops are going to be our game of choice whenever we meet up again. And I'm glad of this, because now it gives me an extra incentive to read up on my extreme danger rules for the two-story buildings as quick as possible, so that I can expand this game even further before the 2014 expansion Dangerous Waters comes out. So that was the third part of the marathon, Flashpoint Fire Rescue. After we got through Flashpoint Fire Rescue, I was keen for a lighter Euro game to set the mood for the heavier Euro games that we might have played. It's popular with my parents and my brother, and I thought it would still work with them, especially when we knew that one friend of ours who wasn't in that group had already bought the game from his local store, and that's Carcassonne. Normally goes down well even with new gamers, and I really enjoy this game, and I only own two of the expansions for it. I'm very tempted to get more expansions for it, but my only problem is I want to get it to the table more often, and as you find out with these games, when you buy this many expansions, you just don't get to use them as often. And I don't need an epic level style of Carcassonne. Carcassonne should be a relatively simple game, and if you start complicating it with too many expansions, then it becomes a bit of a hindrance. Maybe I might invest in some of the mini expansions, I don't know, but I'm not going to go mad with it anyway. But Carcassonne didn't go down as well as I'd hoped. I mean, we enjoyed the game to an extent, and but my friend Dan wasn't as huge a fan of it, even though he played it once, it wasn't his favourite game of all time. And the other guys had a lot of trouble getting into it. I mean, we still played it, we enjoyed it, but they stopped taking it seriously after a point and started making moves that you just would not do for logical reasons and boosted the points all over the shop for other players. So I ended up losing the game by two points to the victor, which was a bit of a shame, but that was mainly due to other players being helped out when they shouldn't have been. But, oh well, no big deal. The weirdest thing with it, though, is that one of the reasons that was given was that the the weird symmetry of the game it puts me off. Now, what does that mean? The weird symmetry of the game? It took me a while to even try to grasp what that meant. I think they were more concerned about the layout of the map in the way that the cities could be all sorts of weird and dodgy shapes. You know, I, I mean, what, does every city have to be a square or a round circle or something? I don't quite get it, but... That was one of the reasons given, and I suppose the game's not for everybody, and I suppose the map's not quite as realistic as a map should be, but Carcassonne's still going to be there with one of my favourite games, so just know that it's not going to be the sort of game I would bring out for that group. I I suppose it does have a bit of a split following in terms of whether you like it or not. But, ah well, live and learn. You know the sort of people that you should play the game with now, you know the sort of people you shouldn't play the game with. Don't put too many expansions to it because it's too many rules to explain and I'd probably still recommend getting a timer for the moves. We did pretty well in terms of speed. The game didn't take that long to finish but I think this game could benefit with like a 60 second egg timer in it. You need to stop people having analysis paralysis all over the place 
So get an app for your iPhone or something like that and just speed the game up that little bit more. It should be quick. You shouldn't be trying to analyze every possible thing you could do. It's too light for that. But, ah well, I won't bring it out for that group again, but it's still sitting on my shelf and it's still one of my favorites with the family. So in a week's time when I go home for Christmas, he, I get to play Carcassonne and dicks it lots with the parents and the family. Very much looking forward to it now. So glad I got them into some more better games. We've been playing games from like Ravensburger from the 70s and 80s for ages and the same trivia games and pub quiz games. And if you listen to one of my first few podcasts, you know what I think about trivia and pub quiz games because I have no trivia knowledge whatsoever. So as soon as I introduced them to these games, they suddenly got hooked on Dixit and Carcassonne. And I've just had reports from my brother that he's managed to buy games like Pandemic and one or two others for them as well. Now, I don't think they're really going to get into Pandemic. I mean, my mum's a nurse, so you'd think that maybe Pandemic would suit them. But my parents are the definitive terminology for non-gamers. And I just don't think they're really going to be able to understand how Pandemic works. Oh, well, it'll be interesting to find out if they do anyway. And if that doesn't work, I'll play it with my brother and we'll have two, two investigators apiece. Fine by me. I'm just glad I can actually spend some more quality time with my brother and family playing some of these games. Although... My brother's going to get a bit of a surprise for Christmas when he notices I've bought him the entire collection for Sid Meier's Civilization, the board game, with the expansions. So, well, that'll be interesting. But that was Carcassonne. I'm going off topic here, and there's one more to cover. At this point, it's nearly three in the morning, and time has just flown by. I hadn't even realised it was that late, and I thought, right, okay, we've got to get some sleep. Nope. Two of them wanted to play games, and one of them wanted to hit the sack because he was leaving early in the morning. Fair play. But it meant I was not going to get much sleep that night. I'm still feeling slightly flaggy now, even though I had a reasonable night's sleep on Saturday night. I'm just so much of a night owl, I can't bring myself to go to sleep early, and I just never get the full eight hours that you really should. But I digress. We decided to go for another Euro game, and being Dungeons & Dragons RPG fans in the past, and some of them still play it now... They were keen to try out my Lords of Waterdeep game. No problem with that. Free player Lords of Waterdeep. How long can it take? Oh boy. <laughs> it took way longer than it should have done. I mean, setup time takes a little while with the game anyway because you've got to distribute a certain number of buildings and intrigue cards and quest cards away from the game if you're playing with Scoundrels or Skullport. Okay, fair enough. Maybe on hindsight I shouldn't have played with the expansion. But I like the expansion so much, and it's not that many new rules to teach. You just change the setup of the game, which the other players don't need to know about, and you have to explain the corruption mechanic. That's it. What else is there to explain? It's just so much better with the expansion, you can't really take it out. I suppose maybe you could take out the corruption track and just use the stuff from Undermountain, maybe, but what's the point? This just hardly seems worth it anyway, and even then you'd have to split up the decks again, because who separates all their cards in the boards game by expansion? I don't know, but I'm still keen to teach Skullport when I teach the game. I think most gamers could pick it up relatively easily. Now, we still enjoyed the game. They weren't quite as enamoured with it as I was, probably because they struggled at the start to come up with their own strategic plan. And they were also thinking, once I got a 40-point quest done, that, oh god, that's a bit overpowered, you know, you're going to be miles in the lead now. Yeah, I know better than that with this game. 
despite being a 40-point lead at one point, I ended up being so drained of resources and having four mandatory quests played on me during that stage of the game that I just could not get myself back. So they all caught up, and by the end of the game, I was actually last. Not by much, there was quite a close spread of points, but I was still last. And purely because of four mandatory quests being played on me, which I have to... I have to admit, mandatory quests are a little bit overpowering this game, I think. I think maybe they should be taken out, but I'm not going to house rule something like that. They're in the game, and it's not often that one player gets them all. So it's not something I would fault the game too much on. However, the buildings worked, everybody's lord worked, and we still enjoyed the worker place mechanic of the game. They were keen to play it again at some point, so I think they just needed that as a warm-up game to get into it. Now they know what they're doing, they can say, right, I'm definitely going to go for this. And it should make our second game quite enjoyable. But boy, did it take a long time to set it up, explain, play the game. I think game timers are going to be needed on some of these games, because AP is just a problem on occasion. And I'm guilty of AP every now and again, so the timer would work against me as well. But I don't know how you would introduce such a thing to a game, because... Some people don't like the idea of being rushed, and if you think you're going up against people who have AP, and they know they have AP, will they be offended if you say, I'm going to put a timer in for this? I don't know. And will it suit a game or completely break it? With Carcassonne, for example, I reckon it would work, but with a Euro game, would you bring in a timer? I don't know. Maybe that's something for discussion on the future podcast. But for now, it was still a fun game, and it took us up to 6am in the morning, at which point I had to throw in the towel and say, look, seriously, we're getting up in four hours' time. It's dawn in two hours' time. I need sleep. So we ended the marathon there, and when we woke up the next... Not the next day. When we woke up four hours later, we finished up with another game of Arkham Horror just to show them what the other expansions were capable of. That game went a bit better except for the fact that I was cursed from the start and was unable to get rid of the curse for the entire game. Again, this is where dice hate me. One player got blessed and had the blessing for the entire game. One player got blessed and lost it instantly. But me, I got cursed and I just could not get rid of it. I was nowhere near the place where you could get rid of it and it was so hard for me to seal gates and kill monsters and that that It brought the game down a little bit for me, but I was enjoying the storyline of my character as well as the encounters I was having, and just the whole fact of me being cursed did add a nice difficulty element to the game for me. But seriously, is it that difficult for me to roll a 1 on a d6? On most other games I play, I will roll 1s constantly. I will roll bad numbers, but why am I only able to roll middle-range numbers when I desperately need either a 1 or a 5 or 6? It's just a pain. Oh well, that's just dice for me. So that wrapped up the marathon quite nicely. It was a good weekend, but boy, did I need a rest. But I didn't get a rest in the end, did I? No, because I was invited round a friend's house for some food and chit-chat. Hey. Well, that's it for episode 9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I'm trying to get the podcast to be a bit more consistent in terms of its format, but I don't mind doing random topics over time, like discussions, obviously a random top 10, or top 5 more in my case, from time to time. And obviously the first impressions are probably the most common thing in the podcast, because obviously I'm trying out new games. But when I say consistent, I want like consistent music across the board, I want consistent 
opening and introductions. You know, you listen to the Dice Tower podcast and their introductions that are perfectly consistent. It's the same words all the time and the only variation is the metaphors that are said just at the end of the introduction. So I just want my podcast to have that little bit of structure so that it doesn't seem completely random from one to the next. It's something I'll work on possibly in the future. Other than that, I'm still keeping the board game reviews up on the site. The Portsmouth on board and Southampton on board session reports are quite popular with the members that we have in the club, but I strongly urge you to read those if you're on my site. There's some good stories there about what happened at the club. There's insight into the games that were being played along with photographs of them. I will work on the photograph quality. It's not easy getting decent pictures on an iPad in the pub, but it's handy to have the iPad back them up over Wi-Fi without me having to do anything. But I do have a digital camera, so I probably should use that digital camera more often to take the pictures, which I'll probably do in the future. We'll see if I can get some better workings with the iPad camera first. But, you know, the website's still going well, and I'm going to keep these podcasts going. They're not going to just end like a flash in the pan, because my goal, in the end, is to get on the Dice Tower network, if I can, and join Tom Vassell and all the rest of those reviewers with podcast entries from time to time. But you have to have kept the podcast going for a while and prove that you're going to keep doing it. So that will be at some point, maybe we'll, we'll give it till first quarter of 2014 before I get back in touch with them about that. By that time, I should hopefully have got to somewhere around like episode 15. And obviously, I don't want to bug Tom Vassell and his gang when he's having to sort out things with his soon to be newborn son and that, you know, best of luck with that, Tom. I hope that goes well. So we'll see how that develops in the future. And obviously, if you're anywhere in the Portsmouth region and you want to join one of our clubs, either Portsmouth on board or Southampton on board, then give me a ring on brokenmeeple at gmail.com and I'll be happy to tell you more about the club and we'd like to invite you in. We're always happy to take members. Failing that, if you've got a little group yourself and you need a, a spare player to fill in some of your games, I'm always pleased to meet new people and shake hands and enjoy some board games. So feel free again to email me and I'm happy to talk further on the subject. Episode 10 is going to be coming up hopefully in the later part of December. Probably will air sometime over the Christmas holidays but I'll need to record it ahead of time because I won't really get the chance to when I'm back in Taunton for Christmas. However my main highlight for episode 10 is that I am going to do my top game of 2013. I haven't decided whether I'll do it as a top 3 or top 5. I might do maybe a top 3 would be suitable but I am definitely going to reveal what I think my game of 2013 is. And I think you'll probably be pleasantly surprised at the one I pick. It's probably not the one you're expecting. Other than that, next review on the website is going to be Caverna Cave Farmers. And I've been wanting to review that ever since I bought it. It is a great game. However, it's not without its flaws. So I feel that a fair review needs to be done on the game. And then I have to answer the big question. I have Caverna, I have Agricola. Do I keep both, or does one get the cull? It's going to be the, one of the hardest questions I ever make. And I haven't even played Eldritch Horror yet. So, we'll see how that pans out. But for now, I'm Luke Hector, this is the Broken Meeple Podcast. Thank you for listening and playing games, and I'll catch you on episode 10. Bye-bye.